Welcome, my friends. That was a song called uh, Bowie, uh, which is um, means come, uh, come with me is the name of the song, and it's by the da 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 the Edan Rachel Project. That's R A I C H E L Project, and um, I guess they're Israeli. And I found a translation of the lyrics online. Quite beautiful. It's um, the the there's a woman's voice there. She's Ethiopian apparently, and she's a very soft voice. She's saying, "Do you remember when you used to bring me flowers? We used to play, discuss, hug, and kiss. We used to have a great time every day. When it got dark, we were eager to see the next day. I get sad when you are not by my side." When you were by my side, I was the happiest. But all those good days are gone, and look at us now. And then the singing um, is, uh, Come, give me your hand, and we'll walk. Don't ask me where. Don't ask me about happiness. Maybe it will come. When it comes, it will come down on us like rain. Come, we'll hug, and we'll walk. Don't ask me when. Don't ask me about home. Don't ask me for more time. Time doesn't wait, doesn't stop, doesn't stay. Well, ain't that the fucking truth? What's going on out there, people? I'm sitting here alone. It's 1030 on a Saturday night in Topanga, California. It's a full fucking moon out there. And uh, I don't feel like working on the book, so... I'm recording Aroma. You are my excuse for not working on the book right now. It feels like I'm doing something. It feels like it's not quite the same as just sitting around and watching, you know, the Daily Show or whatever the fuck else I would do. Uh, So I'm doing a a Aroma episode. I'm going to play some music for you tonight. This is going to be like one of those late night radio sessions with a little poetry and ranting thrown in every once in a while. Uh, a listener sent me a poem. Uh, Kurt Wiseman sent me a poem. I'll tell you what. Wiseman is a pretty cool last name to have, man. Or Weissman. I don't know how he pronounces it. But it's spelled wise man. I mean, that's a pretty cool last name to have. I like where people have last names that mean something. <clears throat> you know, like... I think my favorite is like there's some some people whose last name is Loving Good. I mean, come on, what a cool last name, Loving Good. Hi, I'm Bob. Bob Loving Good, or Living Good. That's a pretty cool last name. But you got something to <clears throat> live up to there, you know. Wiseman. I remember when Casilda first met my father. They had a really nice conversation, and later she was talking about how smart he seemed and. She looked at me. She said, you know, your father is a very, he's a real wise guy. (laughs) And she couldn't understand why I was laughing. You know, it's confusing. English is confusing. Wise guy, wise man. What's the fucking difference? Uh, All right. So this is a poem called The Hips Don't Lie. It's uh, 
Kurt says it's a short poem about struggles with intimacy, self-expression, inspired by a difficult yoga class I had tonight with an insightful instructor. So it's called The Hips Don't Lie. Afraid of loving others and then... Sorry, let me start over. Afraid of loving others and then letting someone down. Afraid of being loved by another only to lose it and feel unfound. Afraid that the wound lays permanent upon my soul, it sears, and torments me forever, confirming my deepest fears. Afraid of being laughed at, ridiculed, and shamed. Afraid that I'm the only one who's wrong and looks insane. Afraid to reach out wide and pull apart this makeshift curtain, lest I find it's a tomb I'm locked in, my future doomed and certain. Yeah, I felt that way in yoga classes. I think that's why I haven't gone to one in a while. Yeah, the hips don't lie. Interesting. Thanks, Kurt. It's a beautiful piece of poetry right there. Pardon me if you're hearing a cacophony going on in the background there. There are coyotes howling and that's got the dogs barking and whole fucking canyon's going nuts. So I don't normally read um, emails from people that are either praising me or giving me a hard time. I get lots of both. Um, but I thought this one uh, was worth reading just uh, because it's it's the kind of thing I hear pretty often. Uh, Mr. Ryan, I first heard you on Rogan's show and been listening to your podcasts for some time now. It is with some regret that I have to say that you seem to be getting angrier and more bitter about American society and culture. And it's really reached a point where I have decided that the overall impression you leave me with after Aroma is such a bummer that I've decided I'd rather listen to less negativity in my spare time. No offense, I think you have some good points. But I find it quite hypocritical that you live in this country, benefit from its freedoms and adopt its technology, and then use those benefits to decry what is wrong with the culture. I'm in no way asserting that there are no problems with our society, but perhaps the occasional positive comment might balance out what sounds increasingly like an aging, angry hippie. Come on, man, lighten up a bit. Steve. Well, here's the thing, Steve. Uh, There are several points here that um, I think are worth commenting on the first and the easiest and the one I'm going to be dealing with for years when this book comes out uh, decrying the benefits of civilization is that the fact that someone lives in this world doesn't mean they don't have a right to criticize it Um, you know you may as well be my fucking cellmate in maximum security prison telling me to stop complaining about the prison because, you know, here you are. I mean, you're eating their food, aren't you? You're using the shower. Why are you complaining about the prison? There's no logical sense in that particular point. The fact that one lives in the modern world is not an invalidation of their right to comment on the modern world or to hold uh, negative opinions about the modern world. We don't choose what world we live in. So, you know, and it's the same thing with technology. 
Uh, so what is it? If you think if you're against air pollution, you can't drive a car or take a bus or fly in an airplane. Otherwise, you've got no right to talk about the quality of the air. You might as well say, well, you know, stop bitching about air pollution. You breathe it. <laughs> There's no fucking sense in that, man. Now, you can choose not to listen to the fucking podcast. I don't give a shit. Just don't listen to it. Why do you feel the need to write me this? You know, it's as if you're, you know, sending me your letter of resignation. I don't care. I don't even know if you're listening to the podcast. So think about that. Why is it that you feel, or one feels, Steve here anyway, feels the need to uh, to reach out? I don't know. Maybe just to give me a little shit and tell me I sound like an aging, angry hippie. Well... Look, I look at the world and I see a lot of pretty ugly shit happening. You don't want to hear people talk about it. That's fine. I get that. I don't want to hear it either. I don't want to see the news, but I'm fascinated by it. I'm, what's happening is we are watching the decline and fall of the United States of America. We are seeing daily things happen that even five years ago would have seemed absolutely ridiculously impossible. That could never happen. That fucking clown could never be the president. No one would ever, until the fucking morning of the election, after the election, it was incomprehensible to me and millions of other people that that fucking clown could ever get elected. And as I've said on this podcast before, I don't necessarily blame the people who voted for him. I understand it. I think it was 9 million people, more or less, who had voted for Obama, voted for Trump. They're not racist. They voted for the black president. They're not stupid. There are intelligent people who voted for Trump because they were tired of the same old bullshit, the same corrupt party system i understand that it's a protest vote i've most of my votes have been protest votes i get that but at this point looking at what's happening looking at the mess that he's creating looking at the 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 corruption the the gutting of departments looking at the wholesale takeover of the american government by corporate interests yeah, I'm sorry if I sound negative, but I'm watching something I love dying and it's pretty fucking ugly. So I don't know what else to say about that, but, you know, I thought it was worth um, addressing. And I try not to be too negative. I mean, I don't know. I try, what is too negative? You know, I, I life is beautiful. I think I talk about life being beautiful. I believe life is beautiful. I'm really happy to be alive. And there's love and there's beauty and there's, you know, butter and garlic and salt and really good shit out there. And music and sex. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to be on the shrimp parade on the 11th. So with uh, Joe and Duncan. There's shrimp parades with butter and garlic. So there's a lot of good shit. And, um, you know, I, uh, I don't think that I'm here to cheer you up. I think I'm here to be honest with you. That's how I look at it. I'm here to, because enough people 
seem to give a shit what I think about things, so I try to be honest about it. And if that doesn't feel balanced to you or you think it should, there should be happy endings all the time, I don't know what to tell you. That's not the way it works. As the song says, you know, maybe there will be happiness. Don't ask me about happiness. If it comes, it'll come like rain. The thing about this sort of uh, cultural proclivity for optimism and look on the bright side and people say, well, you know, I'm a hopeless optimist, so I have to look at the bright side. And um, Or people say, you have to have hope. You got to have hope. That all sounds like it makes a lot of sense, but what does it really mean? What it means is that you're not looking at things cleanly. It means you're consciously choosing to distort your vision of things in a way that aligns with a pre-chosen perspective, right? I'm an optimist, so I'm going to look on the bright side. Well, you know who loves optimists? I've probably said this on the podcast before. Fucking casinos. They love optimists. They love someone who even when their money's running away from them, rolling across the table, they say, well, I'm going to win the next one. I'm an optimist. Yeah. Yeah, I always look on the bright side. So let's double or nothing because I'm an optimist. Yeah, I don't think so, man. I don't think that's a very smart way to look at life. I think you look at it the way it is and you make your decisions based on the most clinical and accurate assessment you can possibly make. And if that's that things are heading in a bad direction, then, you know, sorry, it doesn't feel good. I know, but... When the sun's going down, it's fucking going down. And, you know, it's not morning in America. Well, no, it isn't, Ronald Reagan. And it wasn't. And all you did was hasten the darkness. I've been thinking about this, like all these uh, sexual abuse scandals that have been happening. And um, I was thinking of, there's a book called uh, On Death and Dying. It's a classic in the genre. It's, It's the first book, really, I think, that was... Uh, a bestseller sort of you know widely known about how people die in the stages of grief you may have heard of the five stages of grief that's from this book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the five stages of grief are um, I always my mnemonic device is DABDA D-A-B-D-A DABDA it's a depression oh no it's denial is the first D and then so denial is no no there must be a mistake that can't be me. I I gave up smoking years ago or, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, then there's um, anger. It's not fair. It's not fair. I'm too young. It, it shouldn't be me. And, you know, because we all think it's never going to be us, right? So anger. And then when anger passes, and, and not everyone passes through all five of these stages, by the way. She argues that some people get stuck and they die in the anger stage or whatever. But if there's enough time and enough opportunity to sort of work through things, we we work through all five. The third stage is bargaining. Well, if I stop smoking now, I get the surgery, I, you know, take vitamins, I'll exercise from now on, maybe it'll go away. And then when that doesn't work, it's depression. And a lot of people probably die in depression in that stage. But if we're lucky enough to pass through that stage and work our way through it, then we get to the final stage, which is acceptance. 
Dabda. I find it a very useful device for thinking about not only individual death, but the death of relationships, uh, losing a job, losing money, uh, if your house burns down, you know, lots of different types of deaths will send you into those five stages of grief. But I was thinking that a lot of what's going on in American society right now around all these sexual scandals, there's, there's also sort of a five stage process that I think leads to these things. Um, you know, I was thinking about this Matt Lauer situation and people were talking about how he couldn't uh, sleep with people on the road because he's so famous and he couldn't like go around with other famous people because that would attract too much attention. He's married and he had to be discreet about it. So he was sort of forced to choose his sexual partners from uh, where he worked. And since he was the big shot there, he had this power advantage. So some of the women were uh, apparently coerced into sleeping with him. And um, so I was thinking about that. I was thinking how that whole situation arises because he's in this marriage that's based on a lie right? He's lying to his wife and therefore he can't be caught with another woman because apparently that would destroy his marriage and destroy this false life that he's built up for himself. So I was thinking, and this is, this is just something I jotted down. So, you know, it's open to, uh, uh, editing, but the first stage I think is repression. So we repress a feeling. We repress our sexuality. We repress uh, maybe our desire to be with other partners. Uh, maybe we're repressing our bisexuality or our homosexuality or whatever it is. So we're repressing uh, uh, an appetite. Um, and that creates shame. So Kids told, you know, don't touch yourself. No, masturbation is horrible. God will hate you if you masturbate. And then they masturbate anyway. And then they feel a sense of shame. They're trying to hold this thing down. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Every once in a while they fail. Then there's this sense of shame. And so that, that leads to creating a false life. So you're creating falsity. You're creating a false image of who you are. You're living a lie. You're married to someone you don't love. You're married to someone who doesn't know you because your entire existence is a lie. So then what follows from that? When you're living a lie, you fucking hate yourself because you know it's a lie. You know that's a fake smile that you wear on your face. You know that when you know, you join with the other dudes at, you know, taunting the fags, that you're a fag. You know that when you join with the other senators in passing, uh, you know, anti-gay marriage legislation, that what you're doing is trying to hide from the fact that you love men too. That's why so many of these people are found to be total hypocrites and frauds. And that self-hatred leads you to abuse other people because it's it it forces you to bring them into your false life so in the case of matt lauer 
he can't cop to who he really is because he's got this wife situation that's that's fake he's got this work situation that's fake and so he needs to have his dirty little secret life in a way uh that nobody can expose him to uh, expose him for it honestly i think a lot of the people who have sex with underage people it's not because they're necessarily attracted to kids i don't think they're necessarily pedophiles i think they're doing this with kids because they think kids won't tell. And an adult is more likely to tell. I think that's what's going on with a lot of priests. I think a lot of priests who have been caught out having sex with, with kids, they're not even into kids. They would be having sex with men if they could. But they don't know how to do it in a way that the men, they won't be vulnerable to those men then telling the world and exposing their false life. And then... That leads to eventually collapse, as we're seeing now. A lot of this, these Potemkin villages are collapsing. So those are the five stages I came up with. Repression, shame, false, falsity, abuse, and collapse. And um, I think if you look at Louis C.K., you look at uh, you know all these guys, uh, they seem to have gone through these different stages and it's from my perspective unnecessary it comes about because of the first stage which is repression why are we telling these people not why are we telling people that that their appetites are disgusting because they start out as very basic appetites i've talked about this with anthropologists in fact, I just was speaking with a woman the other day. Um, uh, she'll be on the podcast soon, Micah, uh, who traveled in Africa and had a love affair with uh, an African uh, tribesman, uh, Maasai, uh, nomadic tribesman. And we we're talking about uh, the sexuality among these people. And there is very little kink in hunter-gatherer societies or traditional societies. There's very little kink. There's, there's no like bondage and, you know, all the stuff that we get into because there's no repression. And where there isn't repression, things don't grow in these strange ways. Now, I, I've talked about this before and I got some angry emails from people into, in the SNM community thinking that I was dismissing them or um, that I was um, being negative. I, I don't mean to be negative about it. I'm. Uh, we are what we are. I mean, I've got my twists and turns and everybody else does, but I think that those things happen because when we're young, we are faced with distorting influences on our personalities. Now, as adults, what's done is done. The, the, the die is cast, as they say. And um, I think that once we're in that position, then working through these things with our with our sexual partners in a conscious way is fantastic. That's the best possible way to to deal with these things because that removes that repression and the shame and the false life. It it what it does is it pulls us out of this sequence of events that lead to abuse and collapse. And so I'm totally down with that. I don't at all feel negative about that. But I do think it's interesting that we don't see this kind of stuff in societies that don't have this repression, particularly of children's developing sexual feelings. 
I think that's well worth thinking about. But I'm sick of hearing myself talk, so let's play a tune. This is a song called The L Train, and it's about that famous L Train in New York City. Um, and it's by a band called Shooty's Groove. And I this tune was on an iPod that I bought, I don't know, maybe early iPod, whenever the first iPods came out. It was one of those. And it was shipped from Apple with this song on it. So I don't know anything about this band, never heard of them uh, anywhere else, but I've kept the song from iPod to iPod, the beauty of digital recording. You know, you can just keep the same zeros and ones and it works great. See, I say something positive about technology occasionally. Anyway, this is the L train by Shooty's Groove. Hey yo, this is the way we lay it down on the L train. But yeah, help me out now. Yeah, yeah. Hey yo, black, I need help. I mean immediately and right away. Every single day, I swear I'm gonna find a better way. My enemies are testing me, dissing me, and grilling me. That's the day they're calling me and beat me down repeatedly. Imagine me, now it's like I miss the negativity. It's hard when you pack it. Devil start attacking, got no time for running, no time for hiding. Now I got my crew and we about to get violent. So clear the streets, shake the cops, let's go get these punks. Are you all down? You're nobody better front. Sometimes I am a player, sometimes I am a pawn. No energy to run, but I gotta carry on. Resurrect myself, Lazarus, he was a man. Check it out, Super. bright and early 
the supernatural forces of everything that's good. The supernatural forces of everything that's good. Hey, Chris. My question is, why do we idolize people like Mark Zuckerberg or the creators of Snapchat or Instagram? I work for a multi-billion dollar company in the tech sector, and I've been thinking about the admiration we have for these so-called winners and what that says about our values in future generations. I often hear the word genius as a way to describe these and other Silicon Valley success stories, and it depresses me that we use the same word to describe them as we do to describe the person who came up with the general theory of relativity and predicted the presence of gravitational waves. That would be Albert Einstein. Why do we take for granted teachers, scientists, poets, activists, but idolize people in social media with millions of followers living the most vapid of lives? Uh... Yeah, surely there are some exceptions. Hopefully Elon Musk will help us steer away from fossil fuels. But the vast majority of these millionaires are making money in ways that are not conducive to human happiness and well-being. Making money is not a virtue. Being rich says nothing of our values or character, yet the system tells us that these are the people we should emulate. Why? What can we do? What can we do, Chris? So our heroes and aspirations steer us away from an isolating, materialistic, meaningless existence and back towards a fulfilling existence in harmony with our nature. Damn, dude. Santiago, I wish I knew. I'll tell you the one thing that I've thought about this is that um, someone was, I was hiking with a friend today and he said, do you feel, how do you feel about your legacy? I mean, you must feel great that you wrote this book that, you know, had some small effect on the world and changing the way people think and all this. And um, talking about sex at dawn, of course. And, and I was trying to explain to him that I don't feel that sex at dawn changed the world. I feel like what happened is that there was a wave, a cultural wave and Sexodon came out at just the right time to catch that wave. And it, we were able in that book to articulate things that a lot of people were feeling. And so when they read the book, it was like, fuck yeah, that's, what, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so they would tell their friends and give it to people and ask their partner to read it. And it, it you know, sort of provoked these conversations that were waiting to be had. And so, you know, I, I'm super grateful and appreciative for the role that that book has played in in the world so far. And and like just just today, actually, somebody on Twitter told me that on this new the show called Easy that's on Netflix, um, the first episode of the second season, which just dropped a few days ago. There's a scene where the actors Aubrey Marcus, not Aubrey Marcus, <laughs> sorry, uh, Aubrey, Aubrey, what the fuck's her name? Aubrey, the woman who was on Parks and Recreation, Plaza, Aubrey Plaza. Uh, she's reading a copy of Sex at Dawn. You know, it's just a prop, of course, but, uh, you know, apparently she, she'd read it and so she, that's the book that she wanted to be reading at the time. So I... It definitely has a role in pop culture and, and it's got all this uh, word of mouth uh, buzz and it's great. And it's been, what, seven years since it came out. So almost eight. Um, 
So I'm really grateful for that, but I don't think that the book changed the world. I think that the book um, articulated something that was waiting to be said, that needed to be said. And so when I look at these billionaires, you know, this Facebook and uh, Snapchat and Instagram and, and these people are making billions of dollars coming up with, you know, whatever the latest doodad is or app or whatever. I don't think they're changing the world. I think what they're doing is it's it's like water flowing down a hillside. If you imagine, uh, you know, or maybe lava uh, coming out of a volcano is a better image because it flows slowly. So it's coming down the side of the mountain it is going to flow where there is a channel, right? And so, you know, maybe it hits a, there's a big rock in the middle of the channel that's that's slowing the flow. If you're the guy who can move that rock out of the way, then you make a shit ton of money because you've just allowed this flow to go where it wanted to go. You've removed this impediment to to this flow you've helped it flow a little faster maybe but you didn't you didn't channel the flow you didn't make the flow change its course is what i'm saying so i i kind of feel like that's what people do that's how you make a shit ton of money is you you either through luck or through some sense of where the culture is going or the of the potential of a new technology you're the one who figures out wait a minute we could hmm this internet like we could have a store and that would mean we wouldn't have to actually pay people to stand around in the store and we wouldn't need to rent space in cities and so the shipping cost would actually be less than what we would have to pay for the retail space so our profit margin uh you know we could be we could charge lower prices and still have a bigger profit margin. So the guy who figured that out and started Amazon, he saw where the flow was going and he just jumped up ahead of it and cleared the path a little bit and took a piece of the action. So I agree. They're not geniuses in the sense that Albert Einstein's a genius, but they are they are able to see the direction that things are going and they're able to, you know, or you could say they see, they know which way the wind is blowing and they put up the sail at the right time when the breeze comes and they catch it. And so that's why the culture celebrates them because the culture wants to go where it wants to go and now we get into this concept that i've been dicking around with for a year or two now about the super organism and if you've listened to me for a while you've heard me talk about this uh i the more i think about it the clearer it becomes to me that we are embedded in a living thing that we can't really conceive of because we're embedded within it so we can't understand it or see it any more than a bee can understand and see the hive or an ant or a termite can see and understand the mound we just do what we do and the the hive itself is is a living thing that we're our our lives are embedded within and so there's a movement there. There's um, uh, uh, 
what's the word, a momentum. And it's going the way it's going. And I, I think, unfortunately, the way it's going is against nature. It's against human nature. It's uh, we're a, a larval state. And it is its interest is to leave us behind and to drop us like a shell. Oh, geez, I'm going to get angry emails from people saying I'm too negative. But maybe it's not negative. I mean... I feel it's negative. I'm a fucking tadpole and I don't want to turn into a frog. Uh, you know, my entire life has been a tadpole and everyone I know is a tadpole. And the world that, that I understand from from travel and reading and, you know, all of human homo sapiens has been tadpole. So I don't know, maybe I'm irrationally connected to the life of the tadpole and I should just shut the fuck up and grow legs and drop my tail and become a frog and be happy about it and, you know, blast off into space with my, um, you know, chips implanted and, you know, my, my brain encased in some fucking robot. Yeah, maybe that's where we're going and maybe that's where we need to go and maybe there's no... There's no way of um, <clears throat> really resisting it. But it seems to me that uh, that is not the way we need to go. It seems to me that every good story um, ends with a return to where we began. One of my favorite lines from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Four Quartets, is uh, we shall not cease our explore exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. I feel like that's that may be the course of our journey as human beings. Not to go out into space, not to merge with machines, not to totally fucking trash this planet to the point where we can't breathe and we're all eating plastic and the oceans are cauldrons of waste maybe we've reached an end point maybe we've reached a, not an end point but we've reached the 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 far point of the orbit and now we start circling back around toward where we came from um i talk about this in in the conclusion to civilized to death yes the conclusion is written ladies and gentlemen there's still a couple other things that aren't written but the conclusion is written um i talk about the the fermi paradox where if you're not familiar with this the enrico fermi figured how many stars there are and how many of those stars had uh, planets in in the uh, sort of orbit that could support life. And he did these calculations and he found, you know, hundreds of billions or trillions of of planets in the known universe that, that could support life. And so why on earth, why, literally, why on earth are we the only life form that we know? And... So scientists have debated this for decades, since the 50s when Fermi came up with this. And uh, the answer that most of them have is that there's what they call the great filter, which is that when life forms reach a certain level of complexity, um, they have incredible destructive power that uh, comes more easily technology, technological advancement, 
comes more easily to living things than, shall we say, philosophical or political advancement. And this is something that Einstein pointed out as well when the atom was first split. He said, now everything has changed except the way human beings think. And um, so maybe these scientists uh, postulate what happens is that life does arise on many different planets, but it reaches a point where this destructive capacity is so great and the maturity of the life form is so far behind that they all end up destroying themselves. And so that's why we never hear from them because there's this trigger point where they all just wipe themselves out. And of course, it often feels like we're approaching that trigger point ourselves. And, um, but I hope, and I don't know, I don't think I have enough data to bet one way or the other, but I hope that there's another possibility for why we don't hear from other life forms. Of course, some of them wipe themselves out, but I, I have to believe that there are life forms out there that reached a point uh, of no turning back. They reached that crossroads and they looked in their hands and realized that they were holding their own destruction in their hands. And they very carefully put those bombs down, decommissioned them, and took control of their destiny and said, we don't need to go anywhere. We're from here. And when it comes to ecosystems, the ecosystem you evolved in is the one that you're going to be happiest in. I don't care whether you're a harbor seal or a fucking penguin or a polar bear. Wherever you evolved, that's where you need to be. Because that's what your body, that's what your appetites, that's your being is evolved to expect that kind of environment and to respond effectively to that kind of environment. So we're evolved to live on this planet and uh, it's within our capabilities to take all this money that we're spending now on unbelievably redundant and ridiculous weapon systems and use it for things like encouraging people to have fewer babies by making sure everyone feels economically secure and encouraging education of women which reduces birth rates demonstrably things like that reducing the, the population of the planet we've got the passive energy technology we don't need to be burning shit anymore. We're past that. We could live beautifully on this planet. And I think, as Santiago suggests, I think Elon Musk has a sense of that. I'm going to be eat, meeting with Elon's sister next week, by the way. So who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll be invited to Christmas dinner at the Musk house. But... Uh, if you're interested in Elon Musk, my buddy um, Neil Strauss just wrote a really beautiful review or um, uh, profile of Elon for a Rolling Stone magazine. I would uh, encourage you to look look at that if you're interested in him, because it really 
without being cruel at all, I think Neil really gets to the fact that Elon is driven by um, a sense of inadequacy and sadness that comes out of his relationship with his father and aspects of his childhood um, that lead him to uh certain conclusions about about the world and the universe that um may be may make sense in his personal cosmology but might not make so much sense when you step outside of that but i i'll let you read it it's it's really well done anyway so my point is and this has been a very long-winded response and i'm gonna end after this but my point is that i don't i don't believe the great man theory of history. I don't think people come up with ideas that um, push the culture this way or that way. I think the culture is going where it's going. And when you come up with an idea that helps it go that way, the way it was already going, then that idea can become extremely popular. And it doesn't really necessarily mean that the idea is is any better than other ideas or any more accurate uh, I think that happened with Darwin I think uh, in his case the, the theory of natural selection was brilliant and uh, but it was clearly an idea whose time had come as demonstrated by the fact that uh, Wallace came up with exactly the same idea within months of of Darwin or actually later but Darwin hadn't published it yet on the other side of the world never having met him never having discussed it um they were both by the way when they came up with those ideas they were both reading an essay on human population by Thomas Thomas Malthus now Malthus that essay had become very popular because Malthus seemed to demonstrate that population would always outstrip resources therefore there would always be desperately poor people starving that's not true his calculations were way off his understanding of human reproductive rates were way off but the fact that that idea gave wealthy powerful people a justification for not doing anything about the poor it it gave them the notion that the poor will always be with us so what can we do if we just if we give them money or food they'll just have more babies and it won't solve the problem which is the way we look at feeding pigeons in the park these days right don't feed the fucking pigeons they'll just have more pigeons and that's true with pigeons but it turns out it's not true with people you give them money they have fewer babies um, but Malthus didn't know that and it didn't matter because his idea was convenient and psychologically valuable to powerful people. So therefore it was adopted by those people. Therefore it was seen as correct. Whether it was correct or not doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter right now that everybody knows that trickle down economics, supply side economics is bullshit. It's, they've known it's bullshit since the 80s when they first started selling this shit. But because it's an argument that rich people and corporations can use to justify stealing more and more money from the public coffers, they keep using it. And people keep fucking accepting it because they've heard it so much. It doesn't matter that it's not true. It doesn't matter that David Stockman, 
the economist who worked for Ronald Reagan in the 80s, who first came up with this idea, has since said it was bullshit then. He knew it was bullshit. They all knew it was bullshit. It was just an argument that they made to justify what they wanted to do. That's the way it works. That's the way science works. That's the way business works. So I think that's the answer, Santiago. Those guys are not geniuses. They're just good at clearing the way for the fucking truck that's coming through anyway. So what do we do about it? Uh, I don't know. I think if we, enough of us, get real and look at ourselves and say, how much money do I need to be happy? Really? How much money do I really need to be happy? What is happiness? Do I even want happiness or do I want meaning? I think shooting for a happy life is a mistake. I think it's better to shoot for a meaningful life. Because happiness, like I said the other day with that Tom, uh, Tim Minchin uh, graduation speech where he said happiness is like an orgasm. The minute you start thinking about it, you ruin it. It's true. It's something you experience, but it's not something like, I, you know, you can't organize your life around happiness, which is why I played that song at the beginning. Don't ask me about happiness. If it comes, it'll come like rain. Don't, don't run around chasing rain. Just live your life. When it rains, it'll rain. And I think that's the way we need to think about happiness too. Fuck, I've been talking too long. I'm done. It's 1130. I'm going to go to bed. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a song called Hoya Hoye. It's by a band that is from Ethiopia. They're Ethiopian refugees who moved to New York City, I believe. Uh, and it's Bole to Harlem. Uh, so parts of it are in English. Parts of it are in uh I don't know, whatever language, Ethiopian, is that a language? I think Amharic, is that? I don't remember. Um, but anyway, this is uh, Bole to Harlem, and the song is Hoya Hoye. I hope everything's going well for you out there. Thanks for listening. Hope I wasn't too negative. I don't know. I mean, I have enough to eat. I shouldn't be complaining, I guess, but I wish everybody did. Ciao. Talk to you next time. Yes, I'm so bad. Yes, I'm glad it's not. Yeah, get out of my sight. Feeling alright.